Hello there. Welcome to my podcast, Princess and the Pea Survivor Edition, where we talk about healing from trauma, life's sometimes seemingly impossible tests, and how these ongoing tests impact our relationships with others, as well as the one we have with ourselves. Thanks for being here. My name is Faith Christine Bergevin, and you can call me Faith. I wonder what the word love brings up for you. Depending on your experience, at any given time, love can bring up many different feelings. From joy, to anger, to disappointment, to grief, love has many faces. When you're a trauma survivor, specifically from intimate partner sexual violence, romantic love can bring up all sorts of fears. This latest essay took a 180-degree turnaround in 24 hours from when I started writing it due to my own experience with this crazy little thing we call love. Listen to how I, as a rape survivor, wrestle with the barriers to love. Let's talk about love. When multiple realities about love are true. I bought tulips two days ago. Pink. They're lovely. Here in Victoria, BC, tulips become popular in February, making them readily available on that special day, February 14th. I buy them because I love them. I also don't expect to receive flowers today from a man. And you know what they say, fill yourself with joy because it is up to us to find our own happiness. Cue eye roll. Still, I got them because they make me feel happy. They are sweet and simple and signify hope with their early spring blooms. I began to write about love somewhat hesitantly. I wanted to avoid it altogether, but since my publication day falls on Tuesdays and this Tuesday is love day, I decided to dive into my emotions about it all. Not to put too big a point on it, but my feelings about this day are complex and come from a lifetime of navigating relationships and singlehood, leaving me feeling a bit confused about it all. But it seems writers and philosophers alike have tried to figure love out, so it would seem we are all walking in the dark here. But that was Sunday. What a difference a day makes. I've learned something new in the 24 hours since I last visited this piece. Multiple realities can be true, especially in the realm of love. The teens may be onto something. My teen daughter shared with me this morning that for Valentine's Day, the grads, as part of grad week, have decided that there are three colored shirts that can be worn today. White if you're single, red if you're in a relationship, and pink if you're crushing on someone or if it's complicated. I shared this with my married massage therapist soon after, and he roared with laughter. Yes, he said, I imagine everyone in high school is crushing on someone or thinking it's complicated. It's not just teenagers, though. I'll let you guess what color shirt I'm wearing today. Our barriers to love. I'm quoting Rumi here. Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. End quote. 
By the time we've reached our middle years, many of us have had our share of heartbreak. We have found someone, thought they were the one, and then for a multiplicity of reasons, things ended. Repeat this process until some of us got married. Some are still married and some have divorced or been widowed. Life takes turns we can never really predict, no matter how in love we were when we started this whole business. And it is a business. At least when considering actual Valentine's Day, because that's what all the red and pink things and chocolates and flour and card vendors want us to buy into, even though that is not what love is about. I know that now. I've been thinking about barriers lately, how our own personal barriers impede our ability to receive love. Rumi is correct that we don't need to seek for love, but to seek and find all the barriers to love and then remove them from within ourselves. Aye, there's the rub, as Shakespeare once wrote. As we get older, removing barriers to love gets harder, especially if we have experienced trauma. For young people, it may be easier to trust and fall in love since there have not been too many heartbreaks yet. But for adults who have been through multiple cycles of falling in and out of love and the resulting heartbreak, when you finally find love again, it can send you reeling and cause you to erect barriers, both old and new. And when a woman has experienced a significant relationship injury, a major betrayal, it can feel almost impossible to trust again. Impossible to believe that love can exist without hate, that ecstasy can be experienced without brutality. How do we remove the barriers to love in the aftermath of this trauma? A story in dance. Let me love you, let me love you, let me love you, let me love you. Maybe you know this song? Well, that song was singing say, or sung by a popular artist last night at a dance event as I twirled to a song that is fun to dance West Coast Swing to. It was at a party. The man I was dancing with looked at me knowingly, telling me everything with the story in his eyes, and the story was this. You didn't let me love you. It is true. The song is right. He is right. I didn't when I had the chance because of my own barriers to love. The fact that this man and I are dancing again is a new development, a step forward, a move away from the painful months when we ignored one another at dances in the fallout of our most recent attempt a few months ago. But even though on the dance floor, I smiled knowingly back at him, showing we could joke about it, it remains a source of pain for me. And I imagine for him, we tried several times throughout the pandemic. It didn't work. Of course, now that the fog of this terrible time in history is lifting, I am beginning to see more clearly about myself, my own experiences, all in the context of a difficult time. And I'm not the only one in the field of mental health noticing. The experience of the pandemic is now being acknowledged as the global trauma it is. The American Psychological Association has described it as a generational event that has had catastrophic consequences. And one of them has been the profound isolation many have suffered. To emerge from this event unscathed seems rather ridiculous. How are we to remain open to love when so much has been taken from us and we fear what love could bring? 
loves tests. And here I quote Margaret Atwood, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them, end quote. This is no small matter. Men fear rejection and being humiliated by women. It's understandable. Very often it is the man who makes the first move, asks for the number, asks for the dance, asks the woman out. He is revealing how he feels by taking action. What if she laughs in his face, making him feel stupid to think he even has a chance with her? No man wants to be rejected for his romantic feelings. No man wants to be shot down. And every time he asks a woman for a date, he is revealing his feelings. He is being vulnerable. It is sweet and lovely when the woman is into him as well. It is what Valentine's Day is all about, is it not? That heady romantic love where the man has declared his interest and the woman reciprocates warmly. Sigh. <laughs> but the flip side is he has biology on his side, his power, his considerable strength being more than a woman's. His strength can overpower a woman if he wants it to. And this is where women fear being killed. Unfortunately for me, it is not a theoretical idea. I have lived it. I have lived being overpowered by a man's considerable strength without my consent. In the aftermath, it has been hard to trust a man again, even one who has demonstrated respect for my boundaries. I've desired understanding, but it is not to be because from his side, he has been rejected over and over. We cannot blame a man for the actions of another. And yet the very nature of relational trauma means it is hard to trust. When misunderstandings occur in a relationship, as it is normal they do, the conflict which could have been easily resolved under normal circumstances can become heightened and difficult due to the trauma of having been hurt so intimately and so deeply before. It's not his fault, but still, how he behaves influences how much he can be trusted. How do we remove these barriers? How do I? Another dance story. Two weeks ago, at another dance, I'm in the lesson and I see him enter at the other side of the hall. He does not look at me. I refuse to allow another dance to pass with the same story, so I decide to do something new. As I stand there, barely listening to the instructor, I focus my energy. I envision all the barriers between us rising above us. I do not want us to ignore one another again. I will release my barriers. I will forgive. I will accept. When the lesson ends, he is nearby. Hello, I say. Hello, he says. Would you like to dance? Yes, I say. And we dance. After our playful time together, he walks me off the dance floor. Faith, he says, you're such a good dancer. Have you been practicing? I cannot find the words to answer as I am partly out of breath and partly overcome by the fact that we have just danced together. The next day we meet at another event. He sees me and comes over to take my hand, inviting me to dance. Afterwards, when it's time for me to leave, he hugs me warmly. What barriers remain? How do we let love in? How do we remove these barriers that still remain within us when the path of love is scary, like a dark forest, but also incredibly beguiling? How do I remove the barriers that are still in me re with regards to trusting a man, 
And how does he remove barriers to trusting me? Both need to do so for the relationship to truly work. Whatever is in store, I'm trying to remember what is mine and what is his, because even a man with wonderful qualities has his own barriers to love. But despite the fearful thoughts that continue to float around me, I remind myself of what would be truly scary, not trying to remove the barriers at all. And so it ends. Today, I have three footnotes. And the first one is referencing the pandemic and that it's being called a generational event with catastrophic consequences. I spoke a little bit about this uh, in last week's podcast when I was talking about resilience and my complicated relationship with that word, with that term. Um, but one of the things that was interesting was that, you know, their research is now being done about the catastrophic consequences and, and about the isolation we've lived with and in for so much time. I mean, now looking back to, gosh, two years ago, three years ago, having to isolate, having to only be allowed to be with certain people in your bubble, um, not being allowed to dance in my community. Social dances um, were gone for two years. They only came back last April. And for me, social dancing had been a core element of my own personal healing. So to have that taken away was just really hard for me because I was starting to feel pretty good up until it was taken away. So for me, looking at the pandemic and, and all the rules that were there in place of how to be what we were allowed, when I think of dance, dancing has been here since the beginning of time. Dancing is something that we naturally have in our bodies. Like when we're babies growing in our mother's tummies, the baby has the rhythmic heartbeat of the mom. Like this is baked into our DNA to be able to move. And indigenous peoples have dance as a part of their community, um, their community events and, and connecting as a people. And, you know, people love to dance because it's so relaxing and fun and joyful and, and it brings us into our bodies. And to have it taken away has just been so, so very hard. So now when I look back, it's like, okay, you know, like there's a lot that was taken away. And, and I'm really glad to see that the APA, the American Psychological Association, is, is looking at that. And um, their papers that they've, they've called for are rethinking resilience and post-traumatic growth. So post-traumatic growth is is this way of, of growing beyond a traumatic event. So whether it's a personal one or a global one, like how do we grow beyond? What are, what are the things we learn about ourselves that make us better as people, even though we've gone through trauma? So that's going to be interesting to see uh, what comes out of those research papers. 
Um, my second footnote was that quote that's um, attributed to Margaret Atwood. So I did a little sleuthing and um, this quote was sort of found in Gavin De Becker's uh, The Gift of Fear in the 90s. And he said he found it somewhere else. And so someone did some research down some wormhole and they found um, a book called Writing the Male Character from 1982. And then it was reprinted in Second Words, Selected Critical Prose in uh, 1982. And it's a, something Margaret Atwood said about men and women and that men fear rejection and women fear being killed. And, and that was a quote that was... I guess, partly connected to The Handmaid's Tale as well. Uh, the third footnote is really interesting. I found this research a long time ago, and it's applied physiology, and it shows that on average, men have greater skeletal muscle mass than women, over 26 pounds more, in fact. And there's this article, uh, you can find it if you go to my Substack. Um, publication, Princess in the Pea, Survivor Edition. So if you go there, you'll see the link. And it's called Women in Combat, Physical Differences That May Mean an Uphill Battle. And it's this article um, that Tia Ghost writes that men have 40% more upper body strength and 33% more lower body strength on average than women. And the superior strength of men seems to point to men genetically having larger muscle fibers than women. So what this means is in any given intimate situation the man has the upper ha upper hand he has the power he has the dominance he has the strength and i think that's a really important point because people don't really think about that when when we're talking about consent and we're talking about sexual assault and rape like women innately know that a man is stronger than us and, and science has proved it. And I think it's important to realize that it's not a, just a social idea of men being more dominant, men having, um, in terms of assault, it's actually physicality. And, and I think that brings us back to that Margaret Atwood quote, you know, where women fear being killed because we don't know. We don't know who the man we're gonna be with how he's going to be. He could be really lovely and he could not be. And sometimes it's too late for us when we realize he isn't. So something to consider. So I hope you enjoyed the audio reading of my essay and my commentary and notes. Coming soon, I will be offering comment and analysis for paid subscribers only. Paid subscriptions allow me to produce content that is well-researched and informative. And so if you would like to learn more about my work, please visit my Substack publication, Princess and the Pea Survivor Edition. Consider becoming a subscriber since this is a reader-supported podcast. A subscription will give you access to the latest articles on healing from trauma and how to deal with life's tests, and they'll be delivered straight to your inbox. You'll also have access to my full archives. Your support means I can continue to research, write, and produce this work. Thank you for listening. Be well.